Okay, well, um, we're taking a break from our series in 2 Corinthians this morning because it's Father's Day. I actually uh, haven't preached a Father's Day sermon for several years. I'm going to preach a Father's Day sermon this year. Um, Partly it's because um, I promised you that we're going to do some breaks this year as we go through 2 Corinthians so that it's not doesn't just seem like such a long, tedious journey. It will be even longer that way, but it will also be broken up. So um, we're going to talk about, the sermon title this morning is Family First? Question mark. And our passage is Matthew 12, 46 to 50, which says this. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, there's no doubt that God cares about the institution of the family and he cares about our families. He created the family. And in his word, he frequently honors family. There's the beautiful description of God creating marriage when he created Eve and presented her to Adam. And he said, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh in Genesis 2. And then the commandments we read this morning. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And God instructed His people in Deuteronomy 6 teach my law diligently to your sons and and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And then there's that great Psalm 127. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And then there's all the Proverbs about parenting and about relating to your children. And then there's Ephesians 5 where Paul instructs husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And husbands should love their wives as their own bodies and let the wives respect their husbands. And then there's a few verses later, instructions for children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then finally we have in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here in just eight verses or so, we see that the Bible from beginning to end is just filled with affection for, concern about, and uh, interest in the family. However, that's not all the Bible says about the family. 
in God's word, Jesus himself tells us and shows us that there's a limit to the importance of the family. And we're going to look at three passages that talk about the limit of the importance of the family this morning. The first one is in Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So here, Jesus says, speaking specifically about the family, that we must hate them. Now, we would expect the religious leader to say the opposite almost. We expect the religious leader to come along and say, if anyone comes to me and who does not love his father and mother, his wife, children, his brothers, sisters, and yes, his, his own life, you can't be my disciple. But instead, Jesus says we must hate our loved ones. That when it comes to the kind of love we owe to God alone, we must actually hate our families. Our first love must be reserved for the Lord. This also says that it's possible to love one's family too much. Good things like family can easily be a very subtle and powerful form of idolatry. And this is a warning from Jesus in this passage to not allow even a good thing like family to become an idol. The idols of the prodigal son who ran away from his father and went out and spent all his money, those, sin, those idols are obvious. It's the idols of the older son that are very subtle and therefore potentially more dangerous. Jesus loves family, but he will not tolerate anything becoming an idol. This is illustrated in the story of Abraham and Isaac. God gives Abraham this promised son after all these years of waiting and longing And all of his hopes for the future are wrapped up in this miracle child that God has given to him. But then God says, go, slay him on the altar. And it's only when he's obeyed and he's raised the knife to slay him that God interrupts him and says, now I know that you fear me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see in this story how God is testing him and and calling him to not allow his son to be the thing that is first in his life. Isn't it true that when our love for Jesus is not our first love, that it's really a false love? There are numerous examples of family becoming an idol in the Bible. There's the example, for instance, of Eli with his sons Hophni and Phinehas. You know, Eli was the high priest and his sons were priests and they were not good guys at all. They did some really wretched things. And God confronts Eli and says, why then do you honor your sons above me? 
That's exactly what Jesus is getting at. And then David and Absalom, the same sort of thing happens. Absalom has mounted a rebellion against his father and he's trying to, to take his father's throne away and kill his father. And after, at the end, when his soldiers, David's soldiers finally overcome Absalom and kill him, David is mourning over his son, Absalom, 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 my son, showing no regard for those who died protecting David from Absalom's attempts to kill him and overthrow him. And we see in that also how David made his son too important. And this caused a problem for David in other times as well in his life. Even in Christian circles sometimes today you hear the expression, family is everything. It's not true. Family is not everything. Jesus is everything. The first thing about family is that it's not the first thing. The first thing about family is its secondness. God does not tolerate anything being put before him, even if it's a very good thing. And one more thing about this. Putting Christ first is not a virtuous work which really good people are able to perform with a lot of effort. Putting Christ first is the natural result of realizing who Christ is. And therefore, instead of striving to put Christ first out of a sense of fear and duty or even pride, we should strive to grasp who he is and cry out to him for eyes to see his glory. We should come to his word praying to see his magnificence and his mighty power. Then it will be natural for us to see everything else dim in comparison to his light glowing. The second passage I'd like to look at this morning is from Matthew 10, 34 to 36, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The command here is, don't think something. Don't think that Jesus came to bring peace to your family. Now, obviously, all of us want our families to enjoy peace and unity in Christ. But the fact is that the family will often not be a place of peace, but a place of war. And Jesus' coming is what made it that way. Even though we share genetic patterns and live under the same roof and have our common experiences, our families often contain two humanities at war with one another. And just like Paul prayed desperately for his kinsmen to come to Christ in Romans 9, we pray desperately for our loved ones to come to Christ. But they may not. 
And if they do not, there will be division in our families on account of Christ. Christianity may be hazardous to your family relationships. And if Christ destroys the relationships with people that you love, you've got to live with that. You've got to be willing to endure opposition from them, no matter how vicious or ugly or painful it is. And if family relationships are your ultimate goal in life, you're not worthy to be his follower. And just as there are examples in the Bible of those who loved their families too much, there are also examples of those who refused to love their families more than God. One example is Abel in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Presumably Abel could have made peace with Cain if he had been willing to offer a sacrifice like Cain's. They could have been one in their religious practice. They could have been in harmony together. And then Cain would not have killed Abel. He would have counted Abel as his friend, his companion, his real brother. But Abel was determined to be right with God and to offer a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. He sacrificed his relationship with his brother in order to maintain his relationship with God. And so his relationship with his brother was ruined. He counted his friendship with Christ as more important than his friendship with his brother. And so they were divided forever. Moses, likewise, turned his back on the harmony and respect that he had enjoyed in the eyes of his Egyptian family in order to walk in righteousness before God and identify with God's people. Hebrews 11 talks about this. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Being a son of Pharaoh's daughter would have been one of the highest privileges anyone in Egypt could have enjoyed. And he walked away from it. Why? Because he got it. He understood that belonging to God and being one of God's people is so much more than anything he could get from Egypt. We love our children and our spouses very deeply, hopefully, more than anything else on earth. But the fact is, we can survive without one or more of our children. It would be very painful, but you can survive through Christ's strength. You can survive even without your husband or your wife, but you cannot survive without your Savior. That's the one relationship, the one security you simply cannot do without. You can survive without your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your mother, your father, your friends, your house, your job, your country, your arm, your eye, or even without your life. 
But you cannot survive without the Lord Jesus. And if you feel you can survive without the Lord, you just don't get it. You just don't get Him. And if you feel like you can't survive without your spouse or without your parent or without your child, then you love them too much. We must not allow earthly relationships to be the ultimate goal of our lives. The ultimate goal must always be our relationship with the Lord, to know Him and secure an eternal home with Him. The final passage, and the one that we read at the beginning this, this morning, from Matthew twelve forty six to 50. Here Jesus is in a home ministering and teaching, and while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. They couldn't come in because it was too crowded, so they sent a message in saying, we'd like to talk to you. But the man who brought the message in to Jesus Jesus turned to him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father is in heaven is my brother and sister and mothers. This is amazing. Jesus says, Just because you are my brothers, doesn't just because you, we're related to one another by blood, just because we're Abraham's children together just because you're my fellow Jews it doesn't make you part of my real family and instead he says to his disciples you are my real family who are the ones that Jesus felt a special kinship with his fellow Jews it was whoever was open to him whoever believed in him and became his follower whether that person was a Roman centurion or a Syrophoenician woman or a Samaritan woman or the 12 disciples. And Christ's true family is our true family. There are people on earth that you've never met before to whom you are more closely related than your own unbelieving children, siblings, or parents. You have an eternal family. Your bond with that family is stronger in the end to your bond with your earthly family. And obviously, you have responsibilities toward your earthly family that you need to attend to before the Lord. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But it's important for us to realize these things. I have one more important thing for you to take home with you from this, from all this. Loving Christ more than you love your family is the most loving thing you can do for your family. Loving Christ more than you love your family is the most loving thing you can do for your family. Your family is not God and it must not be treated as so. It cannot thrive under the weight of those expectations. Our our spouse, our children, they are not our salvation. Christ alone is our salvation. And the approval we need is God's approval, not theirs. 
God's love is our ultimate refuge, not their love. Our love for our children should not be in conflict with our love for the Lord. It should be because of our love for the Lord. Because we love God, we love our children. Because He tells us to love our children and calls us to love our children and puts on our hearts a love for our children. We want our children to know that we love them, of course. And yet we also very much want them to know that they are not first in our hearts. We want them to see and feel that the Lord is securely the first thing on our hearts. You see, if we love our family first, we're teaching them that they are God. And we're teaching them that ultimate fulfillment can be found from something on earth. Which is a lie. But if we love Christ first, we are proclaiming Christ to them. We are communicating the superior glory of Christ over anything else. We are declaring to them his excellence and his wonderfulness and the fact that he can solve all of our problems and and give us everything that we need. Jesus Christ is our true family. He is our real home. Isn't that what we want to teach our children? This is what our children need most from us. They need parents who love Jesus first, who trust in Jesus and rest in Jesus, who look to Jesus in the midst of trouble and even in, when there is no trouble. Ultimately, the key to parenting is not methods. It's not a matter of spending enough time with your kids. The key to parenting is who we are deep inside before God. It's a matter of Him being the big thing in our lives. It's a matter of His love reigning in our hearts. The number one thing about parenting is the number one thing about life. To love God first with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no greater way to love your spouse. There's no greater way to love your children than to love Jesus with all your heart. To be fully and absolutely devoted to Him. Recently I preached two sermons about how God calls us to commend the gospel through the way that we live. This is just an, one application of that. We're commending Christ to our children by the way that we live, by the way that we seek Him first, even above them. After I finished the sermon and was thinking about it, thinking about my own history as a father, which is full of regrets because, well, I think many maybe most, maybe everyone has regrets when they look back at their parenting and I certainly do and you know I, at the time I put so much stock in doing it right and what I regret most is that I was not giving first priority to who I was 
to making sure that my heart was set upon the Lord. And I, I just eager for you to, you younger fathers, to, to not fall into my same trap. And then I got thinking about being a pastor. And, I, you know, a few years ago, I, uh, I had a time where I confessed uh, sins to the congregation. So this isn't new to those of you who are there, but, but uh, I went through um, for over a decade a time when um, I was not really walking closely with the Lord and I wasn't really abiding in Him. And I, I thought that I was doing a fine job as pastor because I was, I was preparing and doing the sermons. I was doing everything that I thought I was supposed to do and I didn't. But now that, you know, four years ago, God began to break into my life in a, in a way that, that uh, called, brought me out of this and now as the fog is continuing to clear, I'm, I'm seeing how much I failed the congregation. It's becoming more and more clear to me that you can't be a good pastor no matter how gifted you are, no matter how hard you work. You can't be a good pastor if your heart isn't inflamed with love for Christ. And if you're not abiding in Him. And so it's, it's really the same exact principle. The, the, the key to being a, a good pastor is for Christ to be first in your heart. And I have deep regret over my failures over those years. But on the other hand, I'm so grateful that the Lord who allows us to stumble does not allow us ultimately to fall. And uh, for the work that he's done to, to renew me. And uh, I'm just, I tell you, it's, uh, it's just very precious to be walking with the Lord and drawing near to the Lord. And even though, you know, I can see my wandering heart and I can feel those impulses to go off the path like our hymn, the reason I'm pointing back here is because we sang the, the hymn with the worship team. You know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So I'm very grateful for the Lord who, who, who does. He ultimately has us in his hands and doesn't let us stray and doesn't let us pl- anyone pluck us out of his hand. But I do, uh, if you weren't there, then I apologize to you anew. For, the, for my failures during those years and ask your continued prayers. You're, you, uh, you don't realize a lot of times what's going on with your church leaders and that's sometimes appropriate and sometimes because they're hiding things or whatever but it is, uh, they always need your prayers. So thank you. Let us come to the table of the Lord now. Let us pray. We are prone to wander. And our hearts create idols left and right. And yet, Lord, we know that you've said 
that the key to life is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. So Lord, we know that though it is our tendency to try to seek success and seek prosperity, that you call us to seek you and the promise to give us success and pray we pray therefore that you would correct our thinking and fix our eyes on Jesus and help us O Lord to find our home only in him we thank you now for the sacrament that is before us the sacrament of forgiveness and Lord we know that you have promised that if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and so we come to your table O Lord humbling ourselves and confessing our sins acknowledging our idolatries and praying for your mercy to wash us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he bore the burden of our sins on himself on the cross. That we might be set free from the burden of sin and guilt. Now, Lord, as we come to this table, as we partake of these precious elements, we pray that you would help us to see what a treasure they are and to be grateful and humble and joyful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.